Today is February 16th. On this day in history, February 16, 1921, the last, and by some accounts, the greatest of the Princeton theologians died. His name was Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. He was known as B.B. Warfield, and his students affectionately, though never in his presence, referred to him as Benny. Born in Lexington, Kentucky on November 5, 1851, Warfield was a pastor, scholar, theologian, and uncompromising fighter for conservative Christianity. His father had served as a Union officer in the Civil War, and his mother's father, Robert Jefferson Breckinridge, was a Presbyterian minister of some notoriety. From the beginning, Warfield had a natural love for horses, and especially racehorses. As a child, his primary interest was science. He read broadly and conducted his own scientific experiments by collecting everything from birds' eggs to butterflies to moths. But this science lover soon fell in love with theology. Ironically, the very one who delayed his study of Greek, convinced he would become a scientist, would later turn down a professorship at Western Seminary in Allegheny, Pennsylvania to teach Old Testament because he insisted that New Testament studies was actually his expertise. But he had to learn Greek, and so he did, and he later accepted a position at Western Seminary to teach New Testament literature and exegesis. He was trained at Princeton Theological Seminary, and upon graduation in 1876, served as a supply minister in the First Presbyterian Church of Dayton, Ohio, and then as an assistant at the First Presbyterian Church of Baltimore, Maryland, before his ordination by the Presbytery of Ebenezer in 1879. In 1876, Warfield married Annie Pierce Kincaid of Dayton, Ohio. But during the Warfield's honeymoon in 1876, while traveling abroad in Europe, Annie suffered a debilitating physical episode, similar to a nervous breakdown of some sort, which incapacitated her for the rest of their marriage until her death in 1915. They were married for 39 years. In 1887, Warfield succeeded the eminent A.A. A. Hodge and became professor of theology at Princeton Theological Seminary. This is where his lasting legacy was etched in stone. Partly due to caring for his wife, God's providence confined Warfield to his study, where he could conveniently be found for the sake of his wife, rather than traveling abroad and conducting himself in denominational affairs. His father's weapon was a sword in the Civil War, but B.B. Warfield's weapon was his pen, in a civil war that enveloped Christianity at large and Presbyterianism in particular in the late 19th century and early 20th century in America. Amazingly, he never wrote a systematic theology. However, he did publish a number of books. Nevertheless, his primary writing was almost exclusively confined to periodicals, book reviews, and pamphlets. He succeeded Dr. Francis L. Patton in 1889 as the chief editor of the Presbyterian Review, which underwent a name change to become the Presbyterian and Reformed Review. The study was his headquarters. The lectern and pulpit conveyed the fruit of his work. Detailed research, incisive writing, and compelling lectures and sermons were his gifts to the church. He was a staunch defender of scripture, possessing an apologetic bent and addressing issues prevalent in his time which undermined scripture. His weapon was his pen, where he wrote extensively in periodicals and journals, defending Christianity as a thinking man's religion. Warfield was skilled at articulating the intellectual truths of Scripture's doctrines, whether it was science opposing Christianity outside of the church or theological liberalism opposing the church from within. Warfield defended the faith once for all handed down to the saints. 
He used the Presbyterian and Reformed Review as his platform, where human reason as an autonomous undertaking by the individual was challenged at every turn. As Christians, we must have an authority by which we make truth claims. And for Warfield, as it should be with all Christians, that authority is found in Scripture. Scripture alone is God-breathed. Therefore, it is the foundation of all truth claims. So even the rank unbeliever does not have a right to think on any other foundation other than Scripture because any other foundation is simply shifting sand. It is in this sense that Warfield engaged the culture of his day. He did so by establishing the Presbyterian and Reformed Review as a major voice among the academy, because it was the theological academy which was capitulating to naturalism. Warfield therefore sought to get the academy, and thus the church, back on course. This was an effort to then in turn impact the culture at large. The church can never impact culture apart from truth rooted in sacred scripture. The church must be on the straight and narrow before it can have any navigational influence upon society. Christians are to be salt and light, a preservative of sorts for the culture, at least according to Jesus. Warfield sought to help in this arena. His ink-stained hands bore the marks of a man committed to several subjects, chief among them the inerrancy and authority of Scripture, the intellectual fallacies of evolution, the inconsistencies of perfectionism, the canonicity of the books of Scripture, and the history and theology behind the Westminster Confession. Warfield was unapologetically reformed and confessional. As he refuted the German higher critics of Scripture, he instinctively knew where they went wrong based upon his knowledge of church history within the Reformed tradition. This reveals his humility as he stood on the shoulders of theological giants of the past instead of falling for the newfangled higher criticism, which depleted Scripture's authority and reliability. It is also believed that he never wrote a systematic theology, something he was thoroughly capable of doing, simply because he considered his predecessor's work superior to any other text. I'm speaking about Charles Hodge's three-volume work on systematic theology. This text served as the basis for Warfield's lectures at the seminary. B.B. Warfield was, by all accounts, a godly man. He demonstrated true masculinity. In one moment, he could be seen gently caring for his invalid wife at home, and at another moment, he was staunchly defending the faith from a pulpit or a lectern. One time, a woman approached Warfield during the week of the General Assembly. Dr. Warfield, I hear that there is going to be trouble at the assembly. Do let us pray for peace. I am praying, replied Warfield, that if they do not do what is right, there may be a mighty battle. These words reveal Warfield's willingness to fight for scriptural truth in the face of liberalism and compromise. On another occasion, toward the end of his life and at the height of controversy within their own denomination, J. Gresham Machen was conversing with Warfield when Machen expressed his prediction that there could be a split within the denomination. Warfield simply replied, no, you can't split rotten wood. Thirty-three years' worth of Warfield's writings are found in a ten-volume collection published in the 1920s and a two-volume collection published in the 1960s. You can also read his sermons put to print. B.B. Warfield died shortly after doing what he most enjoyed, lecturing to his students. Walking across campus one day, bound in winter clothing, a fedora on his head, and a scarf around his neck, he suddenly clutched his chest and fell over. Later that evening, he entered heaven. He died from a heart attack. And he died on the battlefield upon which God had placed him, no doubt with his pen at his side. 
His name fit him, Warfield. He was a warrior for truth. Warfield's friend, J. Gresham Machen, was written a letter which expressed the loss of Dr. Warfield. It said in part, and I quote, you may well believe that I was inexpressibly grieved and shocked at the death of Dr. Warfield. Truly, there is a prince and a great man fallen this day in Israel. Where shall we ever find his like as a defender of the faith once delivered to the saints, end quote. Warfield died three months after Abraham Kuyper and some five months before Herman Bavinck. These three men, Warfield, Kuyper, and Bavinck, have been considered three giants of their Reformed era. No doubt a prince fell in Israel on February 16, 1921. But God is always faithful to raise up defenders of the faith in each era of church history. We must resolve to agree with Warfield that if they do not do what is right, there may be a mighty battle. That is other professing Christians who aren't standing for truth, who need to be challenged for their false beliefs. Christians must be willing to go to battle for the sake of Christ, for his gospel, for his truth, and for the sake of doctrine. Warfield's preaching lives on. Once during a sermon, he illustrated the difference between fate and providence by telling the story of a little Dutch boy who disobeyed his father by playing near a windmill. The boy went too close to the windmill and suddenly found himself picked up from the ground, hanging upside down, experiencing a series of blows raining down upon him. What horror, the boy thought. I've been caught in the windmill. He was twisted through the air and he thought his end had come. But then the boy suddenly opened his eyes and found that it was not the windmill that had picked him up, but his own father. He was on the receiving end of a whipping. The boy cried, not out of pain, but rather relief and joy. For he knew at that moment the difference between falling into the grinding wheels of a machine and into the loving hands of a father. Warfield said, such is the difference between fate and providence. Indeed, Warfield took many providential lickings for the faith once for all handed down to the saints, and he did so gladly. Part of standing for truth, as Warfield faithfully exemplified, involved suffering under the providential and mighty hand of God. Warfield lived with an awareness of God's providence. He was an experiential Calvinist. He lived by faith that God was in control of his own circumstances, as well as the building of his kingdom through the church. He would be faithful to the tasks which God set before him and with the gifts he sovereignly entrusted to him. This must be what characterizes all Christians, whether they reside in the academy, the pulpit, or the pew. Jesus is building his church. On the one hand, we must be realistic about current struggles within the visible church. On the other hand, we must be optimistic about the invisible church rising to the surface. God delights in revealing both his truth and his true followers against the black backdrop of theological error and mere religiosity. God is sovereign over all things. B.B. Warfield and his beloved wife had no children. And yet, those of us in the Reformed tradition are really the children of Warfield. We are on the receiving end of a legacy of truth passed down to us. We yield the fruit of a man who went to war. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield was a warrior for truth. One lesson that can be drawn from this is that the rot of theological error and moral failure exposes the false church and reveals the true church. It exposes false Christians and shines light on true Christians. 
This is part of what God does in history. He allows error so that his truth shines brighter. He allows falsehood so that he can raise men who will defend the faith once for all handed down to the saints, not for the glory of man, but to the glory of God alone. You've just listened to an episode of Today in Church History. To access more of these podcasts, you can visit my website, www.pastorandrewsmith.com. If you'd like to subscribe to these podcasts, you can do so by visiting Apple iTunes and search for Today in Church History. Just remember that history is spelled H-I-S hyphen S-T-O-R-Y. Until next time, this is Andrew Smith.